Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Plan B Success. We have Mark Hirschberg today with us from Midtown Manhattan. Now, what's interesting for me is that Mark has a BS in physics, electrical engineering and computer science, and a master's in engineering in electrical engineering and computer science focusing on cryptography. The reason I read that out is that's a few degrees. And, you know, I haven't met a whole lot of people that have a few degrees like that. I'm one of them, Mark. That's the reason I read out. I have a couple of MBAs, a master's in personal management, and I pride myself in the education that I have gathered for myself. At the same time, Mark is the author of the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Mark has done a couple of different things in his life. He teaches an MIT program. We'll talk about that. He works with startups and new ventures as well as Fortune 500. So he's there in the corporate side of things. He's there on the academic side of things. And also, he's a ball dancer. So having said that, Mark, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here and have the opportunity to speak and share some of this with your audience. So let's start with ball dancing. So how did that happen, Mark? Top-ranked ball dancer, a ballroom so, dancer. <laughs> yes, I, I was going to point out, ball dancing might be something different. <laughs> uh, ballroom dancing, it's very interesting. This was a very popular activity at MIT. It turned out to be one of the largest club activities, especially during our January intercession period. And I had been introduced to a girl. So after our first date, I thought, what would be some fun activities, maybe a couple activity, ideally something convenient and cheap because I was a poor student at the time. And lo and behold, there were these classes on campus. So we started going to them. We'd go in the evenings during the January session. And it was fun. It was not like my prior experience with ballroom dancing. That's a whole other story. And it was modern and there were lots of people, you know, my age. And of course you're dancing with a girl, which for me was very fun. Now that, that relationship didn't last long, but I got very into ballroom dancing and I kept up with it. I later got a girl I did date into ballroom dancing. She then decided she wanted to compete which apparently meant I decided I also wanted to compete and we started competing. So for seven years, I went around the country and competed in all sorts of competitions, went to U.S. championship for, for seven years in a row. The best part about that is how it helped develop me as a person. It was certainly fun. I made lots of friends, great exercise, really enjoyed it. I wish I got to dance as much now as I did back then, but Ballroom dancing, probably the biggest effect, it helped with my public speaking. And this is a story I tell my students often. Now, in ballroom dancing, many of you have seen Dancing with the Stars. You're not standing up there giving speeches. But what I am doing is going on stage and performing, screwing up many, many, many times, but still saying, you know, it's okay. I didn't get that step right. It's okay. I, you know, didn't look good here but I'm going to keep going. And that's what built my confidence. And as I spent over, over my life, I spent probably about 15 years working on my public speaking. And this is the number one accelerator is the confidence I got from ballroom dancing helped me become a better public speaker. Wow. That's pretty awesome. 
So when we look at your education, what's with it? So many degrees. Why did you go back to school again and again? Or was it all in one stint? It was all in one fell swoop. And it was a combination of not wanting to have to choose between multiple things that I found fun. I frankly would have liked to have gone on and gotten multiple PhDs and law degree and a bunch of other things. But at a certain point, I said, you know, maybe I should start earning money instead of just (laughs) spending money on very expensive tuition. But if I could, I would be going to school continuously. I enjoy learning and I think it helps us all grow as a person. And what, where did you start your career at? You know, after your education, while you, you were going to school, how did that happen? Right after I graduated from MIT, this was now the latter part of the 90s. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. At the time, the places you generally went from MIT, you went to either a large engineering firm. So in those days, it might have been something like Microsoft or IBM, if you were software electroengineering like I was. You could go on to a PhD. You could go to Wall Street or you can go to consulting. And none of those really appealed to me. I kept meeting all these companies and nothing was quite a fit. I wound up first taking a job just as research staff at MIT, just because I didn't want to leave MIT. I was having so much fun there. I liked being on campus. I liked being in that environment. So that kind of just gave me an extra little snooze button before starting my career. And then I wound up in a startup company, not because I wanted to do startups, just because there were no other options I liked. But it turned out joining a startup was the right thing for me. And I got very lucky that I found what fit and I naturally just grew and developed in that environment. And have you always been with startups after that? Mostly. And I say mostly, many of them are traditional startups. However, I've helped a couple large corporations play startup. I helped Sears launch a new venture called Service Live, which is handling a lot of the labor market for the Sears 1099 contract workers, the people go and repair your dishwasher when it breaks, as well as for other large corporations with the 1099 workforce. I was briefly at NBC as they launched a new business unit that later spun out and became Hulu. I've also done some other consulting. These were all consulting gigs, and I've done other consulting to other companies that probably the names aren't as well known. So I usually do startups. Sometimes I help large corporations who want to play startup or have other special projects. And then I have my parallel career in academia, where I spent a year at Harvard Business School helping to develop a new finance class. And then at MIT developing the class where I've been teaching for the past 20 years. So was that a conscious decision too? Did you always want to teach? I definitely enjoyed teaching. My earlier experiences, I was a teaching assistant in grad school and very much enjoyed that. In my ballroom career, I used to teach a lot of ballroom classes just to the MIT club and coach the MIT team, BU and Northeastern teams and really enjoyed that. And one thing I found is that teaching really helps you learn. I think it was Richard Feynman who said something about you don't really understand something until you can explain it to other people. And I certainly found in everything I've ever taught, I think I know something, but the first couple years I'll teach it, I'm learning a lot more about the subject. My knowledge is getting deeper. 
And even at MIT, where I've been teaching this material for 20-some years, parts of it, okay, I could do this in my sleep. There's always something where you always pick up some new idea or concept so that teaching really helps me to continue to grow. What's your take on college education and the whole discussion right now? You know, and I think that discussion has kind of picked up steam, you know, after the pandemic. You know, people are questioning the veracity of college or the tuition or the need to go to college, you know, with the way the companies are looking to hire people for their skills rather than education. Well, this is this is a broad question. If you look at why the college system began, it started in roughly the 13th century based around libraries where the nature of people who went to, we'll call it college then, it was a different experience, were going there for a specific purpose of being very focused in a particular topic. As it evolved over the centuries, it became something for the upper class, right? The working class never went to college. It was the upper class who would get a generalized degree and the requirements to get into college were things like knowing Greek and Latin, knowing the classics. It wasn't very practical. It changed again post-World War II with the GI Bill, and college became much more of a standard for the middle class in America. I'm going to speak primarily about America, though we see parallels in some other countries. And so I give this background because the mindset of what college is for has shifted over the years, although not necessarily intentionally or consciously. And I think, unfortunately, today, college has become this middle-class view. It was, well, this is, this is how you get a better-paying job. This is how you get a career. We've all seen the data. College education promises better income. But unfortunately, that's, that's in a general sense. And we see many cases of people getting a college degree from a college that isn't very good or they get a degree that's not very employable. And so they don't get the same experience. People who get a STEM degree have a lot of great options. People who get classically, we, we always talk about the philosophy degree and say, well, what are you going to do? Maybe you can work at McDonald's. So I think that's one aspect. The other, and this is a conversation we're just starting to have, that I think is important, is what is what needs a college degree versus vocation? And I've been a, a CTO for much of my career, chief technology officer. I hire lots of software engineers. I would actually say a good deal of software engineering is vocational. You don't need the college degree. You don't need to learn Shakespeare and history and speak a second language and have all these other skills that you get in a general college degree in order to be an effective software developer. For certain companies, yes. For a lot of technical work now. I've also found, I've seen far too many people who go to good schools, brand name schools you would have heard of, and they graduate and they wind up as an executive assistant or managing a small retailer. And there's nothing wrong with these jobs. I certainly don't want to suggest those aren't good career paths, but they spent a lot of time developing skills that aren't so relevant. Whereas if they had learned, if say you're managing a small retailer, instead of having a history degree, it would have helped if you learned a little about marketing, learned a little about accounting, learned a little about hiring, and just had a couple different more practical skills. 
I will end this. I know I've gone on a bit. I will end this by saying, I think fundamentally the system is also broken in that we're telling people you're 18, go off to college, invest this incredibly significant amount of money and time, and that's going to set you up, and now you go forth in life, and we all know that you're going to be changing your career, you're going to be picking up new skills for jobs that don't even exist today. We need to modify the educational system to reflect more of a continuous learning and let people, not just in terms of how college works, but even societally, that's okay to take off for 18 months when you're 40. And how do we finance that when you have a mortgage and kids so you can go and get some additional training that sets you up for the next 10, 20 years of your career? So I think a lot of changes have to happen in the university system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, another thing that I've always been curious about, and, you know, I have a take on it, and I wanted to see what your thoughts are on it. So when we look at schools, like what you talked about, brand name schools or tier one, tier two, tier three kind of schools, you know, I'm, I feel that, you know, when we talk about, let's say, MIT's or Harvard's or Stanford's, a lot of their, you know, obviously the prestige aspect of it uh, in terms of uh, the brand name and at the same time, the quality of education and all that. And the quality of education can be debated between uh, a smaller school and a larger school. But I think one thing that I see, which is, which is very relevant and very strong is how close-knit the alumni is in a Stanford or a Harvard, for instance, irrespective of when they graduated, 20 years ago versus now. I think they're, they're very close-knit in terms of keeping their alumni together and serving each other. And a lot of, uh, a lot of their brand image comes out of that. What, what do you think? I think that's partially true. You're right in many cases. And this is why, in some ways, top business schools are considered to be so prestigious. In business school, most people are going to tell you it's not about the content of what you're learning. You can learn that material on your own, much of it fairly easily. Some people prefer class, some maybe prefer reading. If you prefer the class, obviously going there is worth it. It's not about the content you're getting. It's about the branding. Oh, I went to this school. It's a signal. And it's also about that alumni connection. I think that's even more true for business school. Now, to your, your point about general, we'll take the Ivy Plus group. I think there again, there is some value. We hear certainly with many of the Ivy schools that old boys network, which hopefully mm -hmm. now is a little more open to not just boys and how that can open doors. And you do hear cases of that. I'd say MIT, we, really come up uh, towards the end within that set. We have not been great at having these alumni events of let's go and, oh, you're a young alum, let's get you into my company, let's get you opportunities. We're really much weaker. In fact, that's part of the reason we started the program I did at MIT, because we are weaker on things like that. However, there are still two things that you get, even without that direct alumni to alumni connection. The first, as we know it, is branding. Even in a school like MIT, where you don't have quite that cohesion, you still have this stellar reputation. Schools have floors, but not ceilings. And so certainly you can get the most brilliant person in the U.S. could be at a community college or a college you know, number 2,000 on the list. But when you go to one of these top universities, 
you're not going to get someone mediocre, right? They're all going to be top 5%, 1%, whatever level it is. Mm-hmm. And so you've got that branding, which I think has value. You also just have access to opportunities. And this is something I never appreciated when I was an undergrad. I remember my thesis advisor, I went to his office one day and he said, oh, here's the head of Sun's uh, security group. He came by to chat. This is my student, Mark. He's doing this thesis. And the guy just handed me his business card and said, when you graduate, if you're looking for a job, give me a call. And Sun at the time was a, a pretty big top mm-hmm. tech company. And here's this guy just handing me his card. And he would have done that in other schools, but he wasn't showing up to, say, a Williams College or a University of Virginia. He's showing up, which are both very good schools, but he's showing up to MIT, to Stanford. And so you get better opportunities at these schools, regardless of the alumni to alumni connections. Now, the program that you talked about, that you started at MIT, what's that about? We create a program called UPOP. The name has to do with historical reasons at MIT, but it's colloquially referred to as MIT's Career Success Accelerator. Going back 20 years, what MIT had noticed is that our students, very smart students, certainly we're a world-class university, were not doing quite as well as our peers from the Ivy schools. Or as someone once said to me, the MIT alums wind up working for the Harvard and Princeton alums. And it was, I think, a a valid point, certainly back then. This is before tech really kind of took over the world. And there are reasons for that. Now, I had noticed similar problems in my hiring in that I would ask people a technical question and they'd give me a technical answer. But then I would ask a question like, what makes someone a good team player? And I'd get these blank stares because they're not things we talk about. And so as we, we delve a little more into it, uh, I'll bring this back to the, the networking we talked about. At a school like Harvard or Princeton, where it goes back hundreds of years, you have that cachet, that old boys network of, yes, we're going to help each other and we're all going to go on to, to rule the world. At MIT, we have the opposite view. Networking was actually looked down upon. And it's because MIT is such a meritocracy, and that's so wonderful in so many ways. The idea that if you have slightly better grades than I do, well, then you should get the job, not me, because you have better grades. And grades at MIT, they're pretty objective, right? You answered more chemistry questions than I did. There's, there's no question about, oh, the professor liked you more. You're better. They should hire you. But if it turns out that I was best friends with the CEO's son, and it's not that I'm his best friend, it's that the CEO has known me since I was five. And the CEO has seen me grow up and he knows I'm responsible, he knows I'm hardworking. Those are valuable too. And that is part of the interview process. But at MIT, we just emphasize right answer, wrong answer, who gets the most right answers. So networking was not something we really emphasized in the MIT culture back then. And many of these other skills, teamwork, and negotiation and communication, these were not things deeply emphasized in either the classes or within our culture. And we created this program to address this and try to change the culture at MIT. I think we've been pretty successful with that. And how how did you track the success? It's looking at 
unfortunately, I haven't gotten MIT to um, to do any surveys. I've pressed them for a long time. We should be able to do a A-B test pretty easily, looking at the alums who went through our program and who didn't and can look at certain metrics. We have unfortunately not done that. So this is, to be fair, anecdotal. Just looking at the culture on campus, just as I've now been teaching here 20 years, I talk with students, I talk about their attitudes towards certain things, how it's changed on campus, how our students approach uh, going to their, their interviews, how they approach their jobs and careers. To be fair, some of the success may also come from larger cultural changes. I haven't been able to normalize for that. But my my experience and anecdotal evidence of tracking students for 20 plus years, and I do keep in touch with some of them well into their careers, uh, we seem to have had a significant impact. Awesome. Now, another thing with uh, the transformation in academia is uh, digital services, right? Especially right now, like during the pandemic, there's a talk around how remote work, for instance, has evolved probably whatever would have happened in the next five or 10 years has happened in a year is what people seem to think. And I think the same transformation is going on in the education space as well, especially with online education. And then the self-learning, which has kind of picked up pace and the number of coaches popping up everywhere with whatever they want to coach. And then there's this growing stream that talks about why self-learning or self-education is the way to go and not college education, coming back to the same topic we talked before. What's your take on online education and the evolution we've seen over the last several years? To a first order, I think it's a good thing. MIT actually piloted some of this back with MIT's open courseware that spun out into EDX. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was a friend of mine, Dean uh, Dick Yu, who had piloted this and he said look at MIT we don't have some you know magical secrets about the universe that only our students learn our physics equations are the same as everyone else's physics equations and so there's someone in some developing nation who's not going to be able to come to MIT let's just hand this to them and see what happens because we're going to make the world a better place I think that was a wonderful initiative. And part of the argument is the value of going to a place like MIT or any other university is not that, oh, we're going to show you this formula that you could have learned somewhere else. It's something more. And I'll get to the more in a moment. So I think online learning is great in the sense that we're making the content more accessible. I also am a fan of places like Western Governors University. Now, that started, I think, around 15 years ago. And a bunch of governors of Western states got together and said, look, we have shortages in a couple areas. Nursing was one of them. They, they identified four areas and said, let's create a university to promote education and training in these areas to help with our shortages. And so they weren't focused on that generic bachelor's degree that I've taken a little literature and history and science in different areas. It was, I'm going to get a nursing degree. Here are the things I need to know to be a nurse. And so I think that was very effective. They also had the policy, uh, this is somewhat revolutionary, most universities say you need to get X number of hours or credits to graduate. So with all my degrees, even beyond the classes I took to check off, you have all the classes for this, for that, they said, oh, you also just need for each additional degree X number of units. So you might have to take another class 
just so you hit the, the unit limit or a floor, I suppose. Western governors said, look, if you know ABC, we'll give you a degree. And if you come in knowing A, and if you can learn B in half the time, so be it. They're not going to say, no, no, you haven't been here long enough. They're going to say, you've proven you know it. We're credentialing you. I think that's an important shift that we're going to need to see in universities. Mm-hmm. However, the big catch is what's this other thing you get at places like MIT if it's not memorize these formulas? And that has to do with the interactions and engagement. It might be actually spending time in a lab. And certainly you're never going to, if you're studying uh, nuclear science, you just can't experience working in a nuclear reactor from home. It's just not the same, mm-hmm. right? So some things you just need to do in person. But then there's also engagement. And this is something important in the skills that we teach in this class I help create. You can memorize math. My physics classes, they were just a professor at the blackboard, just writing formula after formula, and we're all scribbling to take it down. But in these classes about leadership, about negotiation, about teamwork, it's much more experiential. And we see this a lot with business schools. It's not so much about memorization. It's about engagement with other people and discussion and interaction to understand complex problems from multiple sides. And as we look at that type of education, which is important for for many different areas, it's harder to do that online because of the nature of how you need people to interact, the spontaneity in some cases, the dynamicism of it, as well as a hands-on component. So I think online learning is very important, but we have to recognize it's not a panacea and different learning requires different approaches. Have you heard of uh, the University of the People? I think that's what it's called, University of People. I don't think I know that one. So this one is a university. I think it was uh, put together by a Turkish gentleman who's probably in the U.S. and it's at least a few years old as far as I know. They have a lot of bachelor's degrees. They probably started off with an MBA program recently. But what they have is they have volunteer professors from various universities, including the Harvards and others, contributing time to teaching. More, t- more than teaching, it's, it's an online platform and they are accessible across the world to any country. I believe a lot of uh, Southeast Asian and African countries, uh, people from those places do take advantage of it. It's tuition free and um, they've been doing a pretty stellar job over the last several years where they're bringing in volunteer teachers to provide education to inaccessible areas where people still want to continue to study. I think that's absolutely wonderful. It sounds very similar to Coursera and EDX, where you also have brand name professors from these top universities who do a course that's generally accessible for either no cost or very low cost. Now, one of the things to note is the level of engagement. I actually took some of these classes when I want to learn a little more about marketing. Mm-hmm. And I took a marketing class from a Wharton professor, along with, I believe it was about a million other people. I could be off by a zero. Maybe it's only a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. I think there's a million watching a hundred thousand on the forum. And so you're not going to get individual attention or right. engagement. And in that sense, it's no different than a textbook, except some people prefer listening. Some prefer reading. Still wonderful. 
but it's going to be a very different experience than if we take the classic uh, British model, where at a place like Oxford, you're, it's not as much about the lectures. It's about that small interactions with, I believe, I might get the term wrong, but I believe teaching assistants. And so it's that small, intimate learning is their approach, which is harder to replicate at scale. Let's talk about your book, The Career Toolkit. What brought that about? Why did you feel the need to write it? I didn't actually intend to write it. After teaching this class for nearly 20 years, I thought, you know, we really need to write down some notes. We teach it to the students in January. They have an entire semester of classes during which they're going to forget all this. And then we tell them to apply it in the summer. And I certainly remember in college, you know, two, two days after the semester ends, all the information falls out of your head. So I thought, let me just write some notes. I was spending a lot of time traveling for work. So I was sitting on planes and hotel rooms. I had the time. And I thought I'll make 20 pages of notes. Well, 20 pages became 50 and 100 and 200. And thought, oh, this is a book. It comes not just from this class, though. Also, my experience from mentoring and helping people, and this is in a wide range. In my career, I've hired and mentored hundreds of people. I've also taught people during the Great Recession. I helped, uh, I was working at SUNY, helping SUNY with a special program. That's the State University of New York. Mm-hmm. We had a special program through the Leverett Institute trying to help people who lost their jobs and those jobs weren't coming back. And we said, look, you can't just, it's not a normal recession where you sit around and then when the money gets back, they're going to rehire you. Your job's gone. We have to shift you to a new career. So I help people through that. I've done mentoring through Streetwise Partners where we're helping people who are just getting uh, either GED uh, for the first time and trying to get out of minimum wage jobs. I've also run online job communities of hundreds of thousands of people, global online communities. I ran the job discussion section. So I have a, a wide range of experience. It's not just a bunch of MIT students I've been helping out for years. And what I've seen over and over is there are a number of skills that we talk about, but we don't actually formally teach them to people. So the book is broken into three different parts. The first focuses on specifically your career and job. So it's how to create a career plan, how to get that job you want in 5, 10, or 20 years. The second chapter, how to work effectively, things like managing your manager, understanding the company culture, dealing with corporate politics. And the third section is how to interview. Now, we've heard a lot, you go anywhere on the Internet, here's how to be a candidate. But if you are in a managerial position or want to get there, hiring people is so important Most companies never train you how to hire other people. Then the second section, I focus on leadership and management skills. Again, many people get promoted into management with little or no training. And then the third section, skills that you're going to recognize all these terms, communication, negotiation, networking, ethics. But when we think about a topic like networking, everyone says, oh, your network is so important. You have to network. How many of us have actually ever been taught how to do this? We're just kind of thrown to the wind. So Mm -hmm. I want to take all the things I've been teaching and put it out in a way that I could help a lot more people than just the students in my class. Awesome. And where do people find this book? You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Indie Books, so all the big platforms. If you go to my website, 
thecareertoolkitbook.com. You can then hit the buy button and see lots of places. Uh, we're going to add something to help support local bookstores in the next couple of weeks as well. What do you do for fun, Mark? Well, there's, there's pre-COVID fun and post-COVID <laughs> fun. Pre-COVID, I actually used to do a lot of entertaining at home. And this would range from my annual Halloween party, large amount of people, big costume party. I've been doing that for over two decades. Also, we do a chocolate fondue party, so these big events, to dinner parties or small game nights. I really do enjoy teaching and my volunteer work, and I've mentioned some of those things uh, throughout this interview. I also love learning, and I love finding ways to learn. Sometimes that's online courses or these books. I would go typically twice a year to something called Renaissance Weekends, and that is similar to TED Talks where we go and learn from lots of different experts in different fields and just kind of is uh, fun for my mind. And then outside of that, uh, travel when I can, a little bit of exercise and probably far more TV than uh, I should be watching. So how was Halloween this year? What did you do different? Oh, very disappointing. This was supposed to be my 24th annual Halloween party. I usually have about 60 to 80 people my whole place is decorated. We do a costume contest at midnight. And obviously none of that happened. I did go to my friend's backyard outdoor gathering of about 10 people. So we were socially distanced outside. And then I went to a Zoom party with a couple other friends from around the country. Not quite the experience I was looking forward to. Yeah, we live in a changing world, don't we? Yes. But next year, 25th annual party, I'm very much hoping that's going to be a big one. That'll be awesome. You know, one thing I'm curious about is your focus on cryptography. And I know you've been in the technology field with various startups. Did you ever get to use that cryptography specifically? I Yes, I, I have. So when I finished with my master's degree in the 90s, there were a handful of options. Back then, you basically could work for... Microsoft, IBM, maybe AT&T, there were about five or six companies that actually did that type of work, or academia, or the government. And those were your options, and none of them really appealed to me. So I stepped aside from cryptography. I thought about commercializing my thesis, which was on uh, electronic voting, which is something we should definitely not do for public elections, but I thought about maybe other ways to do it, for example, uh, shareholder elections. But just it wasn't something I was particularly interested in. As the world evolved and it became more accessible and much more important, where there is more time, money and attention put into it, I got back into cryptography. So the last couple of years, some of the companies I've worked for, one of them, we used to track down terrorists and cyber criminals on the dark web. And a lot of my security training was useful in building those systems and securing them. Uh, more recently, I was at a company where we built an authentication system based on the telecom network. And most of the patents I've written probably were done in that company where my background and training allowed me to envision and create those patents. Awesome. So when you look back at your career, you know, having accomplished so much and having done so much in, in different fields, you know, on the corporate side of things, on the academic side of things, what do you truly enjoy? I enjoy two things. I enjoy learning and I enjoy helping others. 
And if I could spend the rest of my life doing those two things, it would be a, a pretty good one. For people that are looking to find you or connect with you, what's the best way to reach you? If you go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, there's a contact page there and you can send me a message. You can also find my social media accounts and can follow me on any of those. I know you're busy with the promotion of your book at this point, but if you were to look at the next three to five years, what does that look like in terms of what do you hope to accomplish? Good question. And this is something I'm debating right now. I'm using the tools in my book to figure out what are some of the options. One of the things that I, I talk about that I'm facing right now is there's not one answer. There's a couple directions I could go in. I could primarily stick to what I'm doing, which is building startup companies, and I love doing that. There's also spending more time with this book and derivatives from this book. So, um, for example, I built an app that helps reinforce the lessons. You can use the app to basically get a pop-up reminder of what you've been reading. And so this way you don't say, what was that thing I read two weeks ago? It just pops up on your phone every day. You swipe it away. Done. Not a lot of effort. So that app, there might be some additional places I could take it. There might also just be more with the content, depending on how much time I do speaking and teaching that comes out of the book and trying to find a way to keep these options open so I can figure out the right balance. Ideally, I'd continue to do a combination of all of them. So I've, I've got to make plans that in this case, I'm maximizing not, for example, for income, but for optionality to let me find the right balance that's going to give me the most enjoyment. Mark, you've got your hands full. And I'm sure you'll, you'll find your way and come out successful as you have always done throughout your life. You've had an exciting life and I'm kind of looking forward to what else do you do. Hope to have you back on the show in the near future again. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you do as well as your book. Thank you again for having me. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. I hope you liked that episode and are enjoying all the episodes in Plan B Success Podcast. I'd encourage you to go subscribe on your favorite platform, whether it's any listening platform or YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so that you enjoy this content and extract from it what serves you best, what benefits you in your own life, personal, professional, business, whatever it might be. PlanB.Live is the website where you can go in order to find any episode that you would like to listen to. Three times a week, we release episodes, the first being an inspiring interview with someone who's done it, been there, done that, and can inspire you to go after what you want to achieve. Every Monday, that's the episode that gets released. And then, on Wednesdays and Fridays, we pick a topic and we talk about it in order to benefit you in your personal and professional life. At the same time, if you're someone who's interested in learning more about these concepts, if you're someone who's interested in podcasting as well, go check out planbsuccessschool.thinkific.com. That's where all the online courses are. You can learn and benefit from them there as well. There's a bunch of free courses. There's a bunch of paid courses. Start with the free ones. Get to learn what you 
Aspire to Learn, and if you want to delve deeper, then you can sign up for the other ones. Thank you very much. Thank you.